It's been four years since the war ended. It was starting to get cold as he waited nervously outside of the bar. He could hear the perfectly enjoyable evening taking place inside through the crack in the door he stood in front of. But out here, on a cold November night, he was alone to deal with his anxieties by himself. Just the thought of opening the door and going inside gave him that sinking feeling in your lower stomach that keeps getting lower and lower with each breath. He was worried that the people he came here to meet, they wouldn't care about what he had to say, that he'd have to try really hard to convince them he was right. As he thought about those people again, he started to bite his fingernails. He looked down at his watch and saw that it was almost nine o'clock. Enough waiting. It was time to go inside. He pushed open the heavy door and walked into the bar. It was one of the largest bars in Munich, fitting up to 3,000 people inside, and tonight was a full house. The crowd was lively, table after table, row after row, people catching up over a beer, talking politics, sharing gossip. As the nervous young man listened, he realized that everyone seemed to be talking about the same thing, the state of emergency that had just been declared. Which leads us to the reason why it was so busy. This was because of tonight's speaker, whose speech was already underway on stage. The man speaking was the state commissioner, a man named Gustav von Kahr, an extremely powerful man. He's sort of like the governor of this part of Germany. And right now, he's at the height of his power. See, a couple of months ago, when the German government declared a state of emergency, it gave Carr martial power, so he was basically the temporary dictator of this entire region of Germany. Carr didn't mind the extra power. He actually liked it. To him, it was more like the way things should be. He longed for the days when proud kings used to rule over Germany. 1923 was kind of a strange year for German nationalism, but more on that later. Sitting on the stage next to Carr were the two other power centers of Bavaria, the commander of the army and the head of the state police. They were both dutifully listening, looking up at their governor, nodding their heads at the most important points. So here you have the head of the state government, the head of the state police, and the commander of the state military, all in one place. No one seemed to notice the nervous young man as he stood by the door, which was a little strange since he was a pretty well-known face in Munich these days. He took one last moment to survey the crowd again, enjoying their night, drinking, laughing, talking, listening. The time was right. In his final deep breath, he raised his hand over his head and gave the signal. Then, he pushed his way towards the middle of the bar jumped up on top of a table, pulled out a gun, and fired. The nervous young man's name was Adolf Hitler, and tonight he planned to start a revolution. I'm Michael Trapani, and this is How to Start a War, a story from the past that can help us understand our world today. 
This season, we tell the story of the gripping and horrifying events that led to the Second World War, from the viewpoint of those who caused it to happen. The events you will hear actually happened. The words were actually spoken, in all cases based on primary and secondary evidence. You will be in the room as the crime of the century is carried out and get a front row seat into the minds of the criminals who committed it. More importantly, you will see the playbook of the many outside factors that allowed these criminals to thrive so that you can identify them in the world today. An important note before we start. While the characters we follow are at the center of this story, they are not the heroes. They are the opposite of heroes. They are quite literally the most villainous human beings in history. They are on the short list of the worst people who have ever lived. Ever. They should not be celebrated, nor should they ever be glorified. And that's not what this story is about. This story is about what happens when good people like you and me do nothing to stop the worst people on Earth while we still have the power to do so. Let's begin. Chapter 1 Desperation At the beginning, I said that it had been four years since the war ended. In order to understand why a young Adolf Hitler walked into that bar in Bavaria in 1923, you need to understand some background, specifically the war that had ended and what's happened in the four years since. I'm speaking about the Great War, or what would later be named World War I. But in 1923, people just called it the war. Why call it anything else? Every war that came before that seemed like a mere skirmish compared to the Great War. To give you some context, in ancient Greece, there were many bloody battles. One of them, the Battle of Thermopylae, where the Spartans fought against the Persians, 22,000 men would die in combat. At the Battle of Gettysburg, one of the bloodiest battles of the American Civil War, 50,000 men would die. At the Battle of the Somme, during the very darkest moments in the First World War, 70,000 men would die. On the first day, 200,000 men in the first month. With each blow of the whistle, another thousand men in a trench would shout a war cry, summon their courage, and climb out over the top of the trench into no man's land, and every single one of them would die. By the time the Battle of the Somme was over, four months later, the number of deaths would reach 1.3 million. I'll say that again. In a single battle, over a single strategic point, 1.3 million men were killed. This was the scale of devastation on the continent of Europe during the Great War. It was an order of magnitude of death at a speed that the world had never seen before. Why? Well, beginning in the summer of 1914, for the first time, mankind fought a war powered by the furnace of industry. 
modern weaponry that was capable of mass destruction, artillery that could level cities, poison gas that could wipe out whole battalions of soldiers in minutes, machine guns that could mow down charging cavalry in seconds. Fighting happened everywhere, from the fields of Belgium, to the skies over Germany, to beneath the surface of the North Sea. Millions of men, women, and children would die. An entire generation would be wiped off the face of the earth. And like the rest of the war, the ending was a frantic mess. After over four years of fighting, the German military was on the brink of collapse. And the German military leadership told the Kaiser that they couldn't guarantee their lines could hold up for another 24 hours, and that any attempt to make a ceasefire should be made to avoid complete annihilation. The armistice was agreed to on November of 1918. The fighting finally stopped. Now the victorious countries, the allied powers of Great Britain, France, the United States, and Italy needed to deal with the challenge of negotiating peace and figure out what to do with the defeated Germany. This was going to be tough for three reasons. The first was psychological. The effects of the war were devastating. We have only just scratched the surface of that. There was also a fear from the Allies that Germany would attack again. And in the eyes of the Allies, Germany needed to be declawed. The second reason was about power. The old power dynamic in Europe had completely collapsed. Think about it. Europe used to have dozens of ancient monarchies, some dating back to the Dark Ages. But during the Great War, four major kingdoms had been destroyed. The Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, Imperial Russia, and Germany. Imperial Russia was a particularly destabilizing case because they didn't just overthrow their monarchy. They had a communist revolution, which sent shockwaves around the world. Every government was now afraid of communism spreading to their country. Germany didn't have a communist revolution when their monarchy fell. Instead, they established a republic. Not because Germans had a burning desire for democracy, but more as a compromise, establishing a more fair government system and preventing a full-blown communist takeover, which was a real possibility at the time. The point is, now, many of the kings and queens that used to rule over the balanced status quo of Europe were now gone. The third reason was economics. The Allies knew that if they botched the reconstruction of Europe, it could lead to a global financial collapse. Pretty much everyone who fought in the war, the winners and the losers, were now in enormous sums of war debt. And that was just the cost of fighting the war. Now they needed to rebuild everything that was destroyed. Cities, farms, manufacturing, railways, you name it. There are landmines buried in the ground that are still getting dug out of northern France to this day. Trying to manage all of this, the Allied powers began to work out the details of a peace treaty. All of the negotiations to write this treaty were held in closed-door meetings, none of which included the Germans. The final terms of the peace treaty that would be named the Treaty of Versailles are basically the three following points. Point number one, Germany's military would be reduced to a fraction of its size, to only 100,000 men. Military drafts would be outlawed. Tanks, not allowed. Airplanes, 
not allowed. The German military, which was at the time the most powerful land army in the world, would be reduced to the size of the army of Greece. Point number two, Germany had to give up land. They would have to surrender about 13% of its territory. On their western border, the one that they shared with France, they would have to hand over to France the beloved region of Alsace and Lorraine. They would also have to demilitarize the region just east of that, known as the Rhineland. So now there was this buffer zone between France and Germany. The French were not taking any chances. That was the land given up on the west. In the east, they had to surrender land to Poland. One of these regions actually cut through German territory and isolated it. So there was this whole little region of Germany that would be cut off from the rest of the country, surrounded by newly Polish territory, sort of like Alaska to the United States. And if that wasn't enough land to surrender, all German colonies were to be given up and placed under the control of the newly established League of Nations. Point number three, money, specifically reparations. Germany would have to pay 132 billion marks. Today, that number would be worth almost a half a trillion American dollars for a country that had just lost a four-year war and was in ruins. And finally, if only to twist the knife, the Allies added one more clause to the treaty, that Germany would have to accept full responsibility for starting the war. As you can probably imagine, Germans were furious about this treaty. From their perspective, the terms were outrageous and unfair. The reparations that the Allies demanded were unrealistic and would bury the already crippled German economy. The reduction of military put Germany in a precarious position at the center of a distrusting continent, surrounded by adversaries. And the loss of so much German territory was a blow not only to morale, but also to German commerce. So much of Germany's manufacturing and trading ports were in those surrendered regions. The people of Germany struggled to figure out how they would even have an economy to pay for any such reparations. It was an impossible position to be in for any government, but even more difficult for this brand new republic that had just been established. Remember, this was the first time Germany ever had a democracy of any kind, and the average German was still skeptical of its legitimacy. And now, this young government, as its first act, would be forced to sign a treaty that would effectively destroy their military, economy, and territory. In the end, the fledgling republic made a deal with the military. The government would take the hit for signing this treaty, and in exchange, the military would support the new government. It gave the young republic the backing it needed to keep the peace and hold on to their fragile credibility. And so, on the 28th of June, with all of those pieces in place, the treaty was signed in the Hall of Mirrors in the Palace of Versailles. The war was over. Now what? Even though the German public hated the Treaty of Versailles, they also wanted to move on and resume their post-war lives. And that's largely what Germans did. That is, until the collapse of the German currency. A new economic crisis seemed to be coming out of nowhere. The currency, the German mark, seemed to be rapidly inflating. 
How is this happening? Well, wars are not free. In fact, they're about the most expensive thing a country can do. And so it's always really important to figure out a sustainable way to pay for it. Usually this means higher taxes, or maybe voluntary war bonds, where citizens who support the war lend money to the government to help them fund the war effort. But as it turns out, the German Kaiser did none of those things, and instead funded the war entirely on borrowing. He was so confident that Germany was going to win the war that he didn't have a plan to pay for it if they lost. He was banking on England and France paying the Germans back for all of their war debts. Now, the opposite was true. Not only did Germany have a massive amount of war expenses, but now they had to pay for the expenses of England and France through reparations. And so, in 1920, the year after the peace treaty was signed, the German mark began to inflate, and people started to get worried. In 1921, it took 75 marks to buy one American dollar. By the next year, it took 400 marks to buy one dollar. A year later, in 1923, the mark began to free fall. It now took 7,000 marks to buy one dollar. Weeks later, it ballooned to 18,000 marks to buy one dollar. By July, it took 160,000 marks to buy one dollar. Three days later, it took a million marks to buy one dollar. In November, it took four billion marks to buy one dollar. After that, people stopped counting. The German currency had collapsed. It was worth nothing. Any buying power that a German might have had from a salary or a pension was gone. Millions of German life savings was gone. Imagine if your life savings couldn't buy a loaf of bread. Imagine if your entire pension you earned for fighting in a brutal war couldn't buy you a bottle of milk. There are photographs of Germans rolling giant wheelbarrows of marks to their local bakeries just to buy food. Germans began to starve. Starvation quickly turned into anger that swept across the country. The anger was not only pointed at the Allied powers that forced these conditions on Germany, but also towards the government, this so-called Weimar Republic that seems to be doing nothing in response to this crisis. When people are desperate enough, they start to look for something or someone to blame. The German people started to blame their government, not only for the lack of response to the economic crisis, but even for the loss of the war. A fake rumor started to spread that at the end of the war, Germany was actually about to win. But the new republic stabbed them in the back and signed a peace treaty before the military had a chance to regroup and keep fighting. This stabbed-in-the-back theory myth got a lot of traction. Think about it. What better way to restore your national pride and reinforce your own bias that Germany is strong? It's this weak government. It's these adversarial powers around us causing all of this damage. All across Germany sprung up ultra-nationalist movements. They referred to the Republic as the November criminals, since they signed the armistice in November of 1918. That they betrayed Germany by ripping the rug out from underneath its ability to defend itself. And now, because of them, Germany is stuck with this economy in free fall, with no end in sight. 
It's a compelling argument. It doesn't matter that it wasn't true. The only thing that mattered was that a trillion marks couldn't buy a container of milk to feed your children. It was at this time of political unrest that a nervous young man, living in Munich, himself also devastated by the conditions of post-war Germany, decided to take matters into his own hands. That man's name was Adolf Hitler. Hitler would have been a strange character to those who met him at the time. A man who loved Germany, but was not actually German. He was Austrian. An anxious man, a hypochondriac, paranoid. He didn't drink alcohol or eat meat. He was a veteran of the war. He fought as a corporal for the German army. He was on the front lines. He had nearly died in a poison gas attack. He liked to paint, but had not gotten into any of the formal art schools he had applied to. He loved music and was partial to German operas, especially Wagner. He was deeply racist and anti-Semitic, even for the time. He was a disciple of social Darwinism and race theory, a backwards pseudoscience that falsely claimed that certain races were more superior than others. This quack theory goes on to say that Aryan Europeans, those with fair skin and light hair, were at the top. All others, like Jews, people of color, and Slavic people, were beneath them. In the years following the war, Hitler was living in apartments in Munich as a vagabond, with no real profession of his own. He just sort of existed. But inside this strange and confused racist were some actual hard skills. He had a knack for organization. He was meticulous about details. He was an extremely good public speaker. He was passionate about politics and the future of the German state. Taking his skills and his passions together, he decided to join a small political party in Munich. The small political party was one of hundreds of nationalist parties sprouting up all over the country. They didn't do much. They met in bars and talked about small ways they could take action against their government. In a short time, the young Hitler's talents were put to good use. He took over the propaganda team at the party and began to change its message. The party messaging started to become not only more nationalist and anti-government, but also violently anti-Semitic. His new messaging strategy was so pronounced that many party members resigned, thinking the party's new message would start to alienate voters. But rather than shrink, the party actually grew, largely due to Hitler's recruiting ideas. He came up with the idea of recruiting events as a way to gain new members. He would give a speech at one of these events, outlining the party beliefs and their mission, focusing on the downtrodden German, and demanding that those responsible be brought to justice. His speaking talent would galvanize the small crowds, and the party messaging began to resonate. When he became undisputed leader of the party in 1921, he reorganized it to make it even more effective. He scaled up the propaganda team. He established clear party principles, even more extreme than before, calling for the overthrow of the government and a desire for a large, unified Germany. He bought a newspaper and a rundown printing press and turned it into a daily publication, pushing out page after page of party messaging. He designed a color scheme and a flag, uniforming the party membership with a brand 
and a symbol, the swastika. As the leader of the party, he also discovered that you can get a lot of what you wanted faster with more than just words. You can use violence. Hitler had read all about the coup that had taken place in Italy by Benito Mussolini and his famous black shirts. It was those men fighting in the streets that gave the Italian fascist the physical strength to form a coup. Hitler wanted to do the same thing. He began to focus his recruitment efforts on veterans from the war who were struggling to find work. They were rightfully angry about all they had sacrificed for their country, only to come back to a devastated civilian life with no work to be found. It turned out to be a goldmine of recruitment, and Hitler took advantage of their hardships. He formed these men into a detachment of stormtroopers. Their job was to take to the streets in violent protests and organized assaults against rivals, striking fear into their political opponents. Hitler's newly reformed party, the National Socialist German Workers' Party, or better known by its shorter acronym, Nazi Party, was far from the largest political movement in Germany. It was even small for the state of Bavaria. They had no legitimacy, no seats or backing from any kind of power structure, but it was at least now capable of some action. It was at this time that the German mark began to collapse. Germans everywhere were in an uproar over the economic crisis, and anger began to form at the new republic for signing the treaty they believed put them in this situation. Hitler knew his time to act had come, and he had an idea. A rare opportunity presented itself. He received word that all of the leaders of the state of Bavaria would be holding an event at a beer hall in Munich. The state commissioner would be there, the head of the local military would be there, and the head of the state police too. All three power structures would be together in the same place at the same time. Which brings us, of course, to... The startled crowd turned to face where they had heard the gunshot, and they saw him. A thin man with dark hair and a Charlie Chaplin mustache. He was on top of a table, his gun still pointed high into the air. No one noticed his hand, shaking. The crowd began to realize that this man was not acting alone, and as they looked around, they noticed armed stormtroopers had made their way into the hall, blocking exits and windows. A machine gun was being mounted at the entrance. This was now a hostage situation. There was complete silence in the beer hall until Hitler began to use his most dangerous weapon of all, his voice. The national revolution has begun! This building is occupied by 600 heavily armed men. Unless there is complete silence, I will have a machine gun posted in the gallery. The crowd didn't say a word. They were still in shock. Hitler continued. The Bavarian and national governments have been removed, and a provisional government has been formed. The barracks of the army and the police have been occupied. The army and the police are now marching on the city under a swastika banner. Except here was the problem. None of what Hitler just said was actually true. Sure, Hitler's men did have the place surrounded, but that was it. 
No governments had been removed. No provisional governments were being formed. No one was marching on the city. It was all a lie, made up by Hitler, designed to convince the three Bavarian leaders on the stage to join him in overthrowing the national government. But of course, no one in the beer hall would have any way of verifying that. This was the 1920s. Newspapers and telegraphs were about as sophisticated as news delivery got back then. The only thing they knew for sure was that the building was surrounded by men with guns. And the man standing on the table was unafraid to use his. No one, including the three men of power on the stage, was going anywhere. Hitler then turned his attention to those three men sitting on the stage. He told them to join him in a private room offstage. The armed troopers escorted the three officials into the room, and the leaders obeyed. The crowd looked on, in shock, as they walked into the room and closed the door behind them. Hitler entered the room and sat down across the table from the three now furious officials. At last, Hitler spoke to the men. No one leaves this room alive without my permission. His plan was, while extremely rash, very simple. Hitler had this fledgling Nazi party. It was small, but actually starting to make some real noise in Bavaria, and it was growing. Problem was, the only power that they had was in their ability to cause violence in the streets. Violence can only get you so far without any real government backing, so if Hitler wanted the Nazi party to be anything bigger than a politically fluent street gang, he needed the state government, he needed the state police, and he needed the army. The plan was to appeal to the three men sitting across the table, who controlled all of these powers, to join him in an overthrow of the national government. It was time to dial down the intensity, something Hitler was surprisingly good at. His voice softened, his face relaxed. He laid out a proposal and promised the three Bavarian leaders that they would have high leadership roles in the new cabinet. None of the three leaders replied. They held a defiant silence. Hitler tried again, explaining to them the increased power they would receive, no longer working on the state level of Bavaria, but on the national level for all of Germany. Still, nothing. Hitler realized that this wasn't working, and he became nervous. That sinking feeling in his stomach started to creep back. He reverted back to the strategy that he knew worked. He pulled out his gun again. This time, he pointed it at his own head. He began to shout, Look here! I have four shots in this pistol. Three for you if you abandon me, and the last bullet is for myself. If I am not victorious tomorrow, I will be a dead man. Still, the men said nothing. Hitler became short of breath. A feeling of desperation swept over him. He slammed his fist on the table, shot out of his chair, and ran out of the room, back onto the stage, leaving the door open so that his three hostages could see him while he was speaking to the crowd. Hitler walked back up to the podium and announced triumphantly that the three officials had agreed to step down and join Hitler in the march on Berlin. He was doubling down, and he was about to use his last ace in the hole. Well, maybe it was more of a wild card. He continued to address the crowd. 
General Ludendorff will take over the leadership of the National Army. The German national government will organize a march on that sinful Babel Berlin and save the German people. Another lie. But this time, it worked. Because right at that moment, as if on cue, the General Ludendorff appeared at the entrance of the beer hall to thunderous applause. Wait, hold on. Who is General Ludendorff? General Erich Ludendorff was the second-in-command of the German army during the Great War. The guy was a rock star to the German people. And he wasn't just a beloved figure, he was easily the greatest military strategist in all of Germany. He was the perfect symbolic commander you wanted on your team if you were trying to start a popular revolution. But what on earth was THE General Ludendorff doing in a beer hall, supporting this local political party in a national coup? You know who else had that question? General Ludendorff. Yeah, it turns out Ludendorff had no idea why he was there. Hitler ordered one of his aides to drive out to Ludendorff's house in the countryside, give him some vague details of a national coup that had the support of the local government, and convince him that he was needed in person to take command. He knew literally nothing about Hitler's plan, or just how little had actually been accomplished so far. But now, by a pure miracle of timing, here he was, walking in right at this moment, just as Hitler's plan was falling apart. You can't make this stuff up. Okay, where were we? Ludendorff enters to thunderous applause. The three Bavarian leaders in the room couldn't believe their ears. This petulant upstart and this noisy gang of a political party had the entire crowd of thousands cheering for them. Ludendorff was escorted into the private room where the three officials were fuming. After some strong convincing from Ludendorff, who was angry with Hitler about being deceived but now believed that the matter was of a national cause, convinced the reluctant officials to join the coup. Now, with each of their commitments, all five men made their way back onto the stage. Each of the three leaders made a brief statement, swearing their allegiance to Hitler and to the movement. The crowd went nuts. All of Hitler's feelings of nervousness were gone. It was replaced by what one eyewitness called a boyish excitement. Not even he could believe that his impromptu plan was actually working. After he spoke, Hitler assigned tasks for his new conspirators to make preparations for the march on Berlin. He then left the beer hall to check on the status of the other part of his plan, capturing the important buildings around the city. He left Ludendorff in charge and left. Only hours ago, when he walked into the beer hall, he was alone. Now, as he walked out, he had the entire government of Bavaria and the hero of the Great War pledging to support his cause. After Hitler left the beer hall, the Bavarian leaders took some time to think, uninfluenced, about the commitments they had just made. And right away, they began to second-guess their decision to join the coup. They saw an opportunity to remove themselves from the situation. They needed to leave. They claimed they needed to return to army headquarters to make their preparations. When Hitler's troopers tried to stop them, Ludendorff, who was still on board with Hitler's plan, allowed the leaders to go. 
telling the troopers that a German officer could be trusted and that the Bavarian commander of the military would not betray them. The three officials were allowed to simply walk out. On the other side of Munich, Hitler arrived at one of the most important buildings his troopers were supposed to occupy. But when he arrived, he found to his shock that almost none of the buildings had been captured. The most important of which, the telegraph office, was now wiring all of the news of the coup to Berlin and receiving back a single command from the national government. Put the rebellion down. Trying to salvage the situation, Hitler returned to the beer hall only to find that his three Bavarian co-conspirators were gone. He was blind. He couldn't tell what was happening and needed to get the situation back under control. He sent stormtroopers to army headquarters. They never returned. He sent stormtroopers to occupy the police station. They never returned. Panic began to set in. The realization that his plan to overthrow the government with the help of the army had failed. He was now against it. And if that was a fight Hitler could win, he would have done it a long time ago. The sun was beginning to rise, and Hitler's mind, swirling in its own darkness, began to drift towards his gun, still in his hand. But it was Ludendorff, with steel nerves forged in the fires of the Great War, that stopped him. He had one more idea. Neither men wanted open bloodshed, and Ludendorff believed that if they could gather all of the stormtroopers they had left and march on the Munich Capitol building with Ludendorff at the head of the column, no one would dare shoot at them. They might even join them. There could still be a chance of victory. Hitler was reluctant, but he didn't have much of a choice. The coup, in its original form, was deteriorating. He decided to do it. He would stake his revolution on one last march. By 11 in the morning, the march on Munich was underway. Hitler and Ludendorff led a column of 3,000 stormtroopers, a truck with a mounted machine gun, and a Nazi flag that led the way. For now, at least, they were starting to look like a real coup. Shortly after the column began its march, it ran into its first obstacle, a military checkpoint on the bridge that led into the center of the city. Hitler's column stopped, and one of Hitler's closest confidants, Hermann Göring, stepped out from the column, walked up to the bridge, and shouted across to the officers on the other side that they had hostages, and that if they didn't let them pass, they would shoot one of them. Of course, they had no hostages, but the threat was enough for the officers not to take the risk. And so Hitler and Ludendorff proceeded to lead the column across the bridge and deeper into the city. It was working. As they continued, they passed by a town square, where a political activist was giving a soapbox speech to a small crowd. Seeing the marching column pass the square, the activist cut his speech short and joined in the march, encouraging the crowd to do the same. Ludendorff's idea was really working. They weren't being met with resistance. They were actually growing. Just before noon, they came upon the war ministry and a wall of Bavarian police waiting for them. Hitler and Ludendorff's column of troopers approached the building, shouting angrily for them to make way. 
the troopers marched right up to the line that blocked their path and halted. The standoff began. Two armed lines of German rifles pointed defiantly at each other. Hitler's confidant spoke up again. Don't shoot! His Excellency General Ludendorff is here! Hitler shouted too. Surrender! Surrender! The officers refused. There they remained. Rifles pointed straight at the Nazi column, daring it to... A shot rang out from the column, then a volley of shots. Screams, falls, bodies hitting the ground, panic, another volley from the police. More screams. The Nazi column began to falter, then it began to break. Hitler, who had been locked arms with someone who was shot, was pulled down to the ground and dislocated his shoulder. On the ground, he looked up and saw the blood and chaos. He got back up. Violence, mayhem, his men being executed in the street. He became panicked. He became scared. He ran. He turned his back and ran from the shooting. He was shoved into a car and sped off into the countryside. He left behind 17 dead comrades and a dozen more shot. The Beer Hall Putsch, as it would become known, was Hitler's revolution. It was his attempt to overthrow a government that he believed had betrayed its people. On that fateful morning, his movement had collapsed into complete failure and humiliation, and it almost ended his life. It was also a lesson for Hitler in challenging power, a lesson he would take with him when he would, inevitably, try again. Factor one in how to start a war is desperation. War is almost always the last resort for anyone, even aggressive governments. They are at best costly endeavors, and at worst, catastrophic ends. It is rare that a citizen willingly follows a government into war without seeing the same level of devastation in peacetime. If it's just as bad in peace as it might be in war, then what's the difference? The combination of the German humiliation and defeat in the Great War the universal hatred of the Treaty of Versailles and the collapse of the German economy set the stage for radical nationalists. One of them, who was a particularly skilled demagogue, painted a vision for Germany that would bring its people out of depression, out of humiliation, and into its place in the sun. A Germany that would be a world power. A Germany that stood for Germans. A Germany that would be great. One that would make Germans, in Hitler's own words, lords of the earth. After his arrest, Hitler was tried for treason. In the 24 days of his public trial, Hitler's name would be plastered on every newspaper in Germany. And for the first time, his movement would reach past the beer halls of Munich and into the households of Frankfurt, Cologne, and Berlin. He would be sentenced to five years in prison. He would serve nine months. In those nine months, he would write a book outlining his radical, backwards foundations and his vision for a new Germany. He wrote of those that would gain. He wrote of those that would be lost. On Christmas Eve of 1924, Hitler was released from prison and began his walk down a road to war. We will be joining him on that road. 
through all of its appalling turns, to its nail-biting risk, its terrifying and audacious acts, all of which lead to the crime of the century, the deadliest event in the course of human history. This season on how to start a war. How to Start a War is written and produced by me. I'm Michael Trapani. Thanks for listening. <laughs>